Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today's episode is about the mining communities in the Sierra Nevadas. Next time, we will have an interview with the two authors of the book, We Are the Land, that just came out this year, a new exciting history of indigenous people in California. As always, you can support this podcast either by making a financial contribution to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California, or by leaving us a rating and review. Without further ado, let's get to today's episode. Over the last few years, I've become more of a fan of science fiction. Ursula K. Le Guin and Neil Stevenson have both played a large role in helping me through this conversion of sorts, but there are certainly others as well, like Octavia Butler. And while Ursula might fall into more of the literary genre, where Stevenson might be more an updated version of the nuts and bolts approach to science fiction, what they both do is create a picture of other worlds. They are world builders. They imagine other places with different rules or environments and drop humans in to see what they'll do. That, I think, is one of the great values of science fiction, and I think it's quite similar, to be honest, to what historians do. Historians are also in the business of creating worlds that don't exist. The worlds that we write about in the field of history no longer exist. They did once, but they're gone, and there's no way we can actually recreate them from the sources that we have. And as a result, we need both creativity and imagination. But to be clear, we are also world builders in that way, and I want to set this context today as we start our discussion of mining camps, because what we'll be describing is, in fact, another world, a world that does not exist, and I will be doing my best job that I can to describe it to you. And if this episode turns out to be intriguing to you, I'd recommend you go to my previous guest, Susan Lee Johnson's book, Roaring Camp, which captures beautifully in rendered prose what I am planning to cover in a broader outline format today. First, it is important to remember that these mining communities were primarily male communities. Women came in smaller numbers to California in search of gold. This made issues of what kind of work was appropriate for men to do a lingering question for many in this brave new world. Back home, men would have certain expectations about the kind of work that they believed was within their gender role, but without women around to do it, someone had to. Now, while the camps skewed a certain way in terms of gender, they skewed towards the diverse end of the spectrum in terms of demographic diversity, with people coming from all around the world to mine from gold. And many of these immigrant communities arrived with their own perspectives on the division of labor as well. That would become a large factor in mining camps, or a large question. How should labor be divided? Who should do what? And are certain forms of labor more important than others? These questions would be answered in different ways in different camps, but there are some general patterns that can be sussed out to speak to the identity of the camps relative to other parts of society. But before we get to more into questions of labor, let's talk about the more basic necessities of a camp. 
like shelter. As we talked about in our episodes regarding Native American communities in California, the people who lived in these areas had patterns of living that they had established that made sense with the resources available. Some immigrants who showed up were smart enough to look to the local people, like the Miwok, for example, for ideas and resources for how to build structures appropriate for the climate and efficient in terms of what's available. The Miwok also knew that different structures were needed for different times of year, one for cold weather and another for warm summers. And some immigrants did try to construct similar type style dwellings, but most opted for the log cabin or canvas tent, with the southern mines opting for canvas given the more moderate climate. And while many of you probably have a picture of what a tent from this time period might look like, and for me, what comes to mind is those tents from Civil War movies or that opening scene from Dances with Wolves where Kevin Costner's being operated on, of course, we have to have an open mind to different perspectives. Now, when weeks and months turned into longer durations, of course, as they realized they were staying longer periods of time, those structures became more elaborate. Most of the structures were shared by bachelors or men who left their wives behind to strike it rich and had the accoutrement of a bunch of men roughing it. But some did bring their wives, particularly Mexican immigrants, and I use that word mostly ironically, uh, who made the camps more palatable and less Spartan, using decoration and colors that men living in less aesthetically pleasing camps saw as foreign and alluring. In terms of the social organization of the camp, most fended for themselves or worked in small units. These small units, at least within the southern mines, would contain two to five men who worked on shared claims, balancing the task between them and sharing the profits and the costs. In other places, larger groups of men would work together, but not pool resources necessarily, instead just pooling their labor abilities. Many of the men needed supplies to keep them going while they were digging, but obviously this preceded the advent of town markets in many of these areas, which created a window for entrepreneurs to fill, and they did fill it. I find that these are the true renters in any situation, the people that can jump on the wave and make the real lasting wealth. So most of the miners would travel to the nearest store that was available to them and trade gold dust for whatever provisions were needed. During the early days of the rush, most of the resources to support the miners came from Sonora, as people living in this southern community saw opportunity just north of them to make money off of everyday supplies. The cattle ranchers drove cattle to the mining camps to sell beef directly to the miners. However, beyond that, there weren't a lot of options. The camp colonial life did, did get quite monotonous. That is ultimately the nature of the game when supply chains are not created. You have to use what's grown nearby or available. My brain automatically goes to Andy Weir's book, The Martian, which was made into a movie, and in particular, Matt Damon's face as he eats potato grown in his own feces. Obviously, this is an extreme example of what's available, but it kind of gives you a picture into the mentality of people having to survive off of a few staples. In the face of stark food options, this is ultimately when innovation happens, though, um, and it had to happen on the cooking end of the equation and not the ingredients or uh, supply end. Many miners, being in such close proximity to Mexicans and Californios, 
naturally imbibed cooking techniques as they had been using the same ingredients living in the region uh, before the Anglos arrived or the European immigrants. And when the store didn't have the fix for the miners, they would turn to hunting, fishing, which, like most things for miners living in a new place, had mixed results. As a result, uh, miners' diets were rich in some things and deficient in others, and these kinds of diets always have effects. For whatever reason, perhaps tunnel vision and accomplishing what they had come to California to do, many of them neither grew or ate sufficient vegetables to avoid illnesses like scurvy. And we'll come back to illnesses and doctors in a little bit. Another group living in the camp were the Chinese, who had immigrated in search of gold like all the other immigrants in the community. The food of the Chinese interested the Anglos, but they were less likely to eat it than just to look at it. The Chinese immigrants, and this is not a universal statement, but rather an expression of common tendency, would use food as a way to stay on the good side of their volatile campmates. Even though the Chinese were more equipped to handle the mining camp circumstances and accordingly should have had more power in that situation, nonetheless, the Anglos had the keys to power and potentially violence, which explains why they used the food to... Uh, bring a relationship. Some southern Anglo immigrants brought slaves with them to the camps to help with domestic activities. Even though California was a free state, the slave owners used certain incentives to keep them serving, like holding families hostage back home in Dixie. Some mining groups appeared to redefine gender roles for the sake of the larger goal of mining by picking one individual to handle the domestic tasks while the rest worked, usually the one that was least physically able. The best possible solution for Anglo miners was to live in a boarding house like the one in Mariposa County that offered a bed to sleep on and meals, but mostly that it was run by white women. No matter how much the miners wanted to reinvent the roles that white women played back home, still in their minds, the best world is a world in which white women handled domestic activities. For these white women, they saw this as their opportunity to make a decent living, opening roadside houses to cook for men. And even though these female proprietorships existed, for the most part, men staffed the restaurants and did the domestic activities, which was more radical than it sounds to our modern ears. When they weren't eating or working, all people, all ethnic groups needed downtime. They needed to relax. Song, spirituality, gambling, drinking, playing instruments. They were humans passing time on the way to riches. Some of the activities outside of work time led to more connection points between people who might not otherwise have reason to associate with each other, like mass, for example. Catholicism could connect both Mexican immigrants and French immigrants together at a makeshift Eucharist table, for example. And for those who know anything about the Eucharist table, it's all about life and death. And so far in today's episode, we focused on life, so let's talk for a moment about death. To make it through the gold rush, not only rich, but alive, was a feat in and of itself. Many of the diseases that miners had, they brought to camp with them, depending on which path they traveled. If their path to the camps took them through Panama... Malaria, bad food, or ocean-related ailments would find them. Overland trails across North America avoided certain tropical diseases, but regardless of the journey, cholera would find lots of miners along their way. 
If they managed to survive and arrive at the camp, sickness would eventually find them regardless. A lot of those ailments that they had at camp came from or were heightened by the poor diets that we discussed from before. In addition to the food, the environment wasn't beaches and coconuts. In the foothills, the difference between summer and winter months was stark. Moreover, the rainy season would lead to muddy, unhygienic camps crawling with insects. The first major ailment to enter camps in 1849 was scurvy. For those who don't know, scurvy is a vitamin C deficiency that is characterized, quote, by anemia, debility, exhaustion, spontaneous bleeding, pain in the limbs, and especially the legs, swelling in some parts of the body, and sometimes ulceration of the gums and loss of teeth, end quote. Doesn't sound so great. Another common disease was diarrhea, which is something like a joke in the, quote, first world, but according to the WHO, Diarrheal disease is the second leading cause of death in children under five years old. We're talking about today's times. It is both preventable and treatable, and each year diarrhea kills around 525,000 children under the age of five. A significant portion of diarrheal disease can be prevented through safe drinking water and adequate sanitation and hygiene, which, as we just talked about, was not one of those features available in mining camps. A number of homeopathic remedies were used by miners to address this issue. They created a tea of sassafras and spruce leaves, uh, which sounds like something that might be an episode of goop about. They also tried pickling fruits and vegetables to make an acidic broth, which these things sound familiar, right? Probiotics, anyone? There are also rumors that people were dealing with these ailments might be buried up to their necks, but most likely... Those are just rumors. Many people, if they were not pleased with the homeopathic options, would use varieties of doses of opium and quinine. Uh, quinine is an older medicine that might be less familiar to you, um, but it is essentially a medicine that comes from the bark of a tree in Peru and is primarily an anti-malarial drug. Opium obviously comes from poppies and is used to make many of the opioid drugs that we know today. Now you're probably wondering in this situation, well, where are the doctors? Doctors were used primarily as a last resort, as they were not cheap and charlatans were common. It was common to believe that doctors were also the causes of additional pain. This time obviously precedes the period in which we live in when which pain is the, quote, fifth vital sign. Consequently, because of all of these different factors, mining camps were some of the deadliest frontiers, with death rates hovering between 10 and 15 percent. The gold rush was different from typical settlement activities, so comparing it to other settlements and colonization might be unreasonable, but we can draw the broad conclusion that it was not safe to be in a mining camp. Ultimately, and in conclusion, the mining camps were places of experiment, mixing, violence, innovation, culture, and life and death. And remember, as we bring this episode to a close, let's return to the opening discussion of science fiction. Many people think that science fiction is about taking us further from our world. And in some literal sense, that is true, but it is also about us understanding our own world better. 
by traveling to the actual camps and moving beyond the myths of 49ers and prospectors and seeing the multicultural, diverse, violent, experimental landscape of these communities, we should take away from this episode that mining communities were not, in fact, some alternative universe, but a place where the same issues and experiments that are being played today in society and the political domain were being explored 170 years ago in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. See you next time. Thank you.